Hello world, retrieving Brad and Christy from the cloud. Hi, I'm your host, Christy Hornland. And I'm Brad Rayford. Welcome to Risk Factors Perspectives and IoT Podcast. Today, we've got a look at the future of medtech with Adam Brand, Managing Director, and Jane Goebel, Director from KPMG US and UK respectively. In an ever-changing landscape of risk, regulation, and innovation, we'll get the perspective on what the industry is facing and what they should expect in this episode. Let's get to it. All right, Jane, Adam, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Super exciting topic, medical device security. I I am a frequent visitor of my doctor. Uh, She's probably tired of seeing me at this point, but uh, I'm always astounded at the advances, the changes that have happened in healthcare. Uh, and the types of devices that are available. Every time I go into my doctor via telehealth or a physical visit for labs, there's always some new equipment, new technology that's making the job easier, better, faster, uh, getting results quicker, which I think is fantastic. So I'm I'm excited about our conversation today. Um, and if you wouldn't mind, uh, I'd like to talk with each of you. Christy and I want to ask you guys some questions about medical device security, and we'll kick it off with a, a real fun uh, would you rather game? I, l- I love to play games. You guys ready for some would you rather? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. So the scenario craft is this. Uh, a would you rather be operated on by an autonomous robot in a hospital or by a world-class surgeon remotely inside your own home? I will go with the uh, the autonomous uh, on-prem, if you will, procedure. Uh, I'd be worried that the connection would drop at a pivotal time during that uh, remote session. And so I think even though there, there's certainly those risks at the, the hospital for disruption, I would hope they would have better planning around that. So I will go with the in-hospital option. You know, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and state my opinion before we get to Jane and Christy. I'm, I'm in agreement with you, Adam. Like, I grew up playing video games, so video game lag is super, (laughs) it scares me a lot when it comes to telemedicine and remote surgeries. I'm going to have to say the opposite. Really? Of course, there are a number of variables. It depends on what procedure I would be going through, to be honest. However, I think I would trust the security of my own network. More so than probably what's in uh, the hospital. And that's not to say the hospital's network networks are not secure, but I know how much money I've spent on my own. So <laughs> I want to be testing it, to be honest. So I, and again, as long as the network does stand up, and I do hope that it will, because I also pray my provider quite a lot. So I'm going to go with that one based on that. Okay. That's a, an interesting take. I don't know that I have as much uh, faith in my own home network, mostly because I'm lazy. Like, I do security all day, every day. And when I get home, it's kind of like, does it work? Is it, yeah, does it work great? Good enough. And that's kind of what it's, so I don't have as much faith in my own network. Christy, what, what do you think? I like, I like the statement of it depends, but I think I would actually enjoy being able to have surgery in my own home with, say, a doctor that is trusted in their particular area. I like that amount of trust that I would be able to gain. But I also have a new home 
So I trusted a little bit more. There aren't any kind of legacy systems in here. You know, the one thing that that I I always go back to is as comfortable as I think I would be in my own home and knowing like, oh, they're going to operate on me in my own bed and I don't have to move and I get to convalesce in the comfort of my own sheets and pillows. Um, what if something goes wrong during the surgery? Right. The, the, I think there's a big assumption that the surgical robot, the remote robot, has the capabilities and the, the equipment to treat whatever's happening. That's why I like the idea of a hospital. Right? If something goes wrong with that autonomous robot, hopefully there's a, a swarm of nurses and <laughs> other doctors around that can come and help me as, we, as they're like, oh, that was the wrong leg we operated on. Shoot, we should probably fix that. So that's, that's the big sticker for me. Well, I appreciate you taking uh, playing that game with us. Uh, as we get into this conversation, I'm, I really want to focus on uh, what are your thoughts about the future of medtech and medical device security and, and how we see that impacting choices being made today within healthcare organizations uh, and choices that uh, would we need to factor into our evaluation of securities, uh, be it through regulation uh, or through adoption of additional technology and enablement of that technology. Well, maybe to kind of start off, can maybe Jane actually start us off with sharing a medical device that you're especially interested in? This could be from a professional lens or a personal standpoint. Yeah, do you know what? Um, there are some phenomenal advancements that are happening in and around the connected device landscape at the moment the market size you know you just look at that it's 52 bill at the moment that's going to rise to 136 billion of it to 2028 uh 38% increase test my maths um between now and 2028 so that just shows you the amount of not just the manufacturers but kind of new leading edge companies who are in this space making their way with some really uh, disruptive uh, views on how they uh, deliver new services, new models of services for across healthcare. Um, I was talking to a really interesting startup company uh, three weeks ago now, and they're called ERA. So ERA um, actually develop the, this really wicked transformative remote-assisted technology that connects the blind with a network of certified agents. So when they actually place the wearable smart device, um, which are glasses, um, and they start walking about, there's certain sensors and there's certain algorithms built into the wearable spectacles that these connected agents can actually talk to the blind person and tell them exactly what to do, where to step, how to move, and, and things like that. Now, um, that is fascinating, in my, in my opinion. But what's even more fascinating is the fact that the advancements of this technology will be more so on the level of Superman, in my opinion. So what will happen with these spectacles and the algorithms and the, uh, the kind of the capability of the technology is that the, the actual spectacles will be able to see two miles, three miles down the road in the next building, around the corner, stuff that 
you know, is just absolutely kind of out of our reach today. So it'll not just be for blind people, but I'll be obviously wanting a, a pair of those as long as they they uh, look good and not too <laughs> too heavy. <laughs> but yes, uh, that is something that just really knocked me off off my seat the other day. So it's those types of new innovative products that are changing how we live and you know that that was great for me so is the is the i have so many questions about this um is the intention of or is the goal of the company to replace like service animals or is it an augmentation to service animals uh seeing eye dogs and traditional uh visual assistive canes and, and things like that um, they are very much geared. Their business model is is structured down to one one mission statement, and that is to make blind people see. Hmm. So the actual wearable glasses, spectacles, goggles. Um, there's various designs. Um, they are, are. It's it's very much built from actually enabling that blind person to go around their day to day business. Um you know probably without the sport that they they need currently which might be through uh you know blind dogs or um assisted support and things like that it reminds me very much of daredevil from the the marvel comics where he had sonar like vision and could see things without needing any type of i mean he faked it so that people wouldn't know that his he was daredevil and in, in, uh, as his alter ego but uh very cool that the making blind people see or giving them the capability to see and see better than we meeble, feeble humans can see <laughs> at the at current. Yeah, I mean, that that's fascinating. I've not heard of, of that idea, but it certainly goes to that concept of, you know, what could be used for, um, you know, life sustainment or, or you know, mitigating the effects of, uh, you know, a, a disease or, um, you know, a condition could also be used to enhance that same function theoretically, right? And uh, I don't know what other um, use cases I've seen on that, but I mean, you could imagine, like, would it be possible you know, you've got a, a pacemaker, say, and you need it to sustain your life, your your heart is not, you know, operating as it should be, but, you know, is there is there a mode of that where it's like, you know, extreme mode, <laughs> you turn on <laughs> ludicrous mode on your pacemaker, and then you can just run around the block and, uh, you know, not have to worry about uh, your blood pumping. Um, that's that's pretty interesting, Jane. Um, you know, for me, I, I'm fascinated with the um, advances in enclosed looped systems. So that would be the idea that there's a medical device that is not just monitoring for a, a situation or a condition. It's actually taking that input and then acting on it. So, you know, Pacemaker uh, or ICD is is an example of, you know, or I guess it'd be more of an ICD that would be an example of that. But, you know, another one would be um, when you think about uh, diabetics, right? And diabetes is a huge uh, issue uh, in the United, United States, um, type 2 diabetes in particular. But, you know, obviously type 1 is, is very um, challenging for those folks that especially have small children that would you know, they have type 1 diabetes, they need to have their, you know, injections on certain times. And, you know, they might have a, a device, it's like a glucose monitor on the one hand and an insulin pump on the other. But it's fascinating to me that we're starting to see more of these, what you might call an artificial pancreas. So it's a device that not just monitors the glucose, but that can also 
you know, uh, provide the, um, the insulin at the right time based on the, the measurement. Um, so I find that really fascinating because it's, you know, has the opportunity to really change people's lives. You know, in this case with like type one diabetes, the ability to just have that, that pancreas, um, you know, it's like an electronic pancreas, right? Um, but you extend that to other ideas and, and think about, you know, hospital situations. And right now, people are connected to loads of monitors, especially in ICUs, so that doctors can react in time to, you know, or nurses to whatever condition might be happening. But you could envision that, you know, they could also have devices that could react to those signals and act faster than, say, a nurse could come, you know, and, and react to that. So let's say a patient all of a sudden has a regular heartbeat, right? And that triggers an alarm at the central station for the nurse. You know, they go off and, and you know, get the doctor or there's a reaction to that, right? But imagine if the patient was already wearing, you know, uh, an ICD or something that could react to that, um, that monitor and, you know, take action and not, not just, you know, a you know, heart condition, but there could be a variety of other medical devices that could be, I would say, like more proactive care that could be tied into the monitoring system to change the reaction time for these things to, you know, milliseconds. I find that really fascinating. And I think that could really advance care. So yeah. in, in essence, speeding the time to care by reducing the human latency, yep. right? Of even, even just a nurse having to walk down the hall to the room can be life or death in some situations, right? Adverse reactions to antibiotics or other medications that are in, in IV drips. Uh, earlier, you mentioned ICD. Uh, just for our listeners out there, an ICD is an implantable cardioverter defibrillator yes. right, that actively monitors the heart and will provide the necessary electrical impulses much like the, uh, the nodes in your heart would if it was operating properly, right? Providing that stimulus so the heart continues to beat in a normal rhythm. Yes, yeah, thank you for providing the, uh, the definition there. I sometimes get into the weeds <laughs> and forget to, to expand the acronyms. Yeah, no worries. One of the things, uh, you guys kind of touched on it a little bit. Uh, when we start talking about organs, I'm really excited to see how additive manufacturing or 3D printing will come into effect for things like organ transplants. Right. The idea or the notion that we still have to cut open somebody and spread their chest to do a heart replacement terrifies me. Right. I mean, the, the, the trauma that goes along with something like that is understandable, but our 3D manufacturing and 3D printing capabilities have come such a long way. We can now print bioactive and, and biological materials. So I envision a day not so far in the future where through a laparoscopic technique, a small incision, be able to liquefy the heart that's there and 3D print a new one in place. I think that shortens the recovery time. It improves uh, organ reception, right? Less, less chance of rejection. Uh, and I'm really excited to see something like that come out. Now, that might be a far-flung future, but <laughs> I'm, I'm envisioning uh, myself yeah, 60 I, years from now, yeah, like exactly. needing one of those and not wanting to be cut open on a table. I have... I fear medical stuff. I don't like doctor's offices. So there, I might be a little bit biased. Well, or, or even you can imagine, you know, nanotechnology, right? That promise uh, that we heard about many, many years ago, and I've not seen what advancements there are, but you can imagine tiny machines getting injected and they go to the right place and they start the repair on the organ themselves. And, you know, I think it'd be interesting to see more of those crossovers, but I'm not, I don't have high hopes for, for these things anytime in the next 10 years. I think we, we hear the hype and then all of a sudden it's like 30 years go by and you're like, aren't we supposed to have flying cars? Like, what happened to this? Yeah, I agree. 
Christy, what do, what do you want to see? I mean, the magic school bus idea that Adam just brought up about little tiny people entering my body and fixing things, that is ideal. But like Adam said, I don't think that I'll see that anytime soon. Um, that brings up strong, strong thoughts for me about the path of AI and the ethics of AI. And but well, that's a different, a different conversation for a different day. Um, as we as we talk about these medical devices, uh, obviously forefront of my mind is how do we secure them? Right? The the medical device advancements are not necessarily tied to the advancements of cyber or even the techniques that we employ within cybersecurity. Uh, there's a whole host of regulations that are applied and, and, and enforced or required, um, but I'm interested, what do you see as the current landscape of regulations, and is it enough? I just want to start off answering that question probably by maybe just clarifying the, the kind of the use of the word medical devices when we're, when we're talking about uh, the response that regulators have around the security requirements um, on devices. So the first thing is that we should be really talking about connected medical devices because there is a big difference. I mean, in the past, we had medical de devices and they're deployed to control kind of medical equipment and display reading. Um, a lot of them were standalone and firmware used for just a handful of use cases. But now, flip forward to kind of the present day, and a lot of the kind of advancements that we were just talking about just before, a lot of, a lot of that stuff it, we will be seeing, not the school bus of little, uh, <laughs> of little agents kind of running through our bodies. But, but that said, we are in this environment where we're living in an um, internet of medical things, the IOMT ecosystem. And so what I want to say is that we've got to be talking about the term connected medical devices and those are essentially you can define those as as the devices the apps that are embedded in the network um, of connected electronics and they therefore allow for the collection and exchange of data and you can just imagine they've got ultimate purposes all of which um, feeding these new business models, use cases, services in and around health that we've just touched on just before. Um, but most importantly, they're using the data to actually make better decision making, um, uh, which obviously feeds into care and, and makes everything a lot more effective and efficient and agile and transparent. So we really need to be thinking about the term connected medical devices and the real reason that we've got to kind of use that term is that we're talking about uh, a kind of network uh, scenario of devices, which actually therefore plays in the reason why we have security concerns, because now we're talking about uh, a kind of the, the opening up of, of potentially new attack surfaces. And those are really... Um, in a lot more kind of uh, complex ways than those attack surfaces that have been previously existing with the old def definition of, of medical devices that just sat in the hospital. So the regulators, and in, in answer to your, to your question, have got a really difficult task actually, because what they've got to do is bring to the table some guidelines that it's, 
it's not mandatory um, regulations in, in, in and around security. I've looked at the worldwide kind of uh, dictionary versions of these regulations and there's no mandatory um, requirements. A lot of them are, are guidelines. Um, so we've just got to kind of level set on that. However, there is, a, there is going to be a, a change in that landscape going forward. Now, these regulators have got a really difficult task because now they are talking about how do you start defining the guidelines for security in a multifaceted ecosystem of Internet of Medical Things, whereby even the responsibility for a lot of the security within this ecosystem is not really clear cut. Okay, you've got your manufacturers, but you've also got your software suppliers. You've got various different organisations in the the resale um, chain. You've then obviously got your uh, end payers, the the users of the devices, either you or I, or the hospitals themselves. And in that connection, you've also got the technical layers and the technical complexities. So you've also got um, the different levels of the device themselves and you've got something what we call the perception layer, which is basically the, the layer that collects the data within these connected devices. You've got this connectivity layer, which essentially is the, the networks that the devices sit on. You've also got the processing layer, which is your middleware or um, uh, how it links into the cloud and the systems that allow the device to process to work and then you've got another layer on top of that which is the application layer which is the the kind of the powerhouse of how they make sense of all of the data the analytics the the kind of the big data the um the data lakes that that kind of attach to the devices so you've not only got this ecosystem of stakeholders responsible for the security but you've got all of these different technical layers as well so i do feel really sorry for the regulators to be honest um because when they sat, sit back and they think right okay what what does it bloody look like to actually think around the security of of the devices themselves what do we recommend what are the guidelines and what they've done is I think they've done a really great job of actually identifying um, a number of security requirements and what they've done across the globe. More so, most countries are really geared up to actually provide a harmonized set of requirements. Um, there are differences because there will be because each country has their their own privacy laws etc but there's a real push to actually provide that harmonized view of what security should mean um uh, for uh kind of the the manufacturers or the kind of the supply chain or even kind of the the end users so i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of hand it over to, um at the moment just to see what anyone else thinks and if you've got any questions on that before i start diving in a little bit more in the detail of those regs when we're looking at medical device security i think jane you mentioned a few things that kind of suggest to me what the difference might be between medical device security and just connected device security and i'm curious adam what you heard there in terms of regulatory is there anything outstanding outside of what Jane said that you really think comes to mind as a differentiator? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly, um, you know, 
human life and safety is is the, the the main one that jumps to mind, right? And that's really where you get the difference between a device that's just sitting on your network, you know, helping with the, you know, uh, as a camera or helping with access control to one that's actually, you know, sustaining uh, patient life actively or, um, you know, guiding a surgeon during surgery or providing them with, you know, drugs they need to survive. So I think that's kind of the key differentiator and the one that we highlight. And I think it can be difficult sometimes in a clinical environment for folks to appreciate the difference um, because they, uh, you know, they, they deal with life and death all the time, right? But I mean, this is from a security perspective, um, this is not a, um, there's not a great uh, history here or a, a long history here in terms of the security around that type of scenario. So when you think about, um, you know, where we've come with the advances in connected medical devices and, you know, I'd add to that definition, you know, ones that they may be connected 100% of the time or they may be connected some of the time. Um, so, you know, you still have this, these ideas of these devices that connect to the network as they need it, as needed for updates. But the main difference there is that a lot of the security controls that we have developed have been for systems that are not focused on or where the consequence of failure is not a human life and safety issue. And so, you know, as an example of that, there was a situation that, um, you know, I think it was a few years ago where a surgeon was uh, performing surgery. They had like a, a camera that they were using and there was an antivirus scan that started on that system, right? Right at the time of the procedure was happening and it made the system unresponsive. So in that case, you know, you're trying to do this thing from a security perspective, which is great. And the antivirus manufacturer may have some awareness of, yes, when there's an AV scan, the CPU is going to spike and users are going to find a slow experience. But what they may not have anticipated was this would be used in a situation where it really, really matters if that computer is online or not, right? And if that was part of their calculus when they designed that feature, maybe they would have approached it a little bit differently. So I think the, the human life and safety element is definitely core to some of the differences in terms of approach and solutions for securing these devices. Yeah, and maybe to that point, Jane also influences what the different regulations that you were kind of mentioning before. Yeah, absolutely. So um, across the globe, most countries have their own set of uh, cybersecurity guidelines that underpin their medical device regulations. I suppose the big one um, that everyone does know about is around the medical device regulation, the, the, the EU version of that. Um, so what's interesting is that um, the EU, um, who've got um, a, an update version that came out in 2019, and that was the guidance of cybersecurity for medical devices. Um, what's really interesting in, the, in that update is that um, they went from four pages of cybersecurity requirements to now um, 47, I was counting. Uh, please do go away and count, but I, I'll put money on it. It's 47, 47 pages within there. Um, so it shows you how how serious the EU are, are kind of thinking in and around the cybersecurity of the connected technologies. Um, in the UK, there's been some really great development advancement in and around the thinking around cybersecurity 
um, regulatory guidelines. Um, the Medical and Healthcare Regulatory uh, Agency, who is our regulator over in the UK, I'm saying are because I'm sat in the UK now, um, they're really thinking about hard about software as a medical device and also artificial intelligence as a medical device and what they're doing is they're being pinpoint focused on both of those aspects insofar as that they are developing their guidelines um, around cybersecurity to 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 actually launch those um, and they'll be hitting in terms of a formal uh, set of guidelines in 2023. Um, and what we're seeing across not only the EU, UK, but Japan, China, Australia, the TGA, Medical Device Cybersecurity Guidelines, Saudi Arabia, Germany, France, um, which are obviously part of the EU, but have got their own definitions. And um, what I just want to say is that at least over the last 24 months and rolling forward over the forthcoming 24 months, all of these regulators are taking the opportunity to revamp, reassess and their re therefore relaunch what they're doing in and around the, the, the security guidelines. And that is very much driven on the point that we're talking about before, because technology is way ahead of the curve and security is, is having to work alongside it and do, do as good as a job as do, of, of that as possible. So we've had a lot of, I know, um, I know I've, I've kind of purposely missed out the, the US there because they've got an interesting set of uh, uh, regulatory guidelines. And I'm going to let Adam kind of talk about that in a little bit more detail. Um, but around the globe, what we're seeing basically is a kind of thematic view is a lot of change um, and a lot more pinpoint focus on what security should look like. Great. So one, yeah. of the, one of the things you mentioned there, Jane, and before we go to Adam to talk about what's happening in the U.S. landscape, when we're talking about connected devices, it, most of the use cases that we're seeing are individual devices that are connected to a back-end system, right? What about in situations where you, an individual may have multiple devices that now work in concert with each other and are having machine-to-machine -machine or device-to-device -device communication directly? and they're not from the same medical device provider. Are the regulations or the guidance, are those, is that evolving as well for those situations? And how much collaboration are the individual manufacturers expected to have or, or are having for those, for those uses? Yeah, so the, f the first thing I want to say is that what you've just painted in the words that you've just shared with us is the, the ecosystem of the Internet of Medical Things which are all connected and as you said perfectly correct that um all these devices do have different let's just call them um kind of owner organizations manufacturers in other words even though we that we've got to be really clear in terms of what the manufacturers um should be defined as because that's a, a complicated set of um uh, concerns in itself but let's for the for the case of this this kind of conversation the manufacturers um, will have to register certify each of their devices now that means that to, and they certify those to the regulators now what that means is that um, in a in a perfect world and if all of those manufacturers or companies are certifying and are registering because there's a lot of 
um, a lot of problems where uh, some organisations don't go through that process and they're, they're the illegal devices that we're, we're talking about here. But let's just say in a, in a perfect world where all of these devices are registered and are certified, what you'll have is regulators having this rich bank of information around which of which which devices are actually part of this ecosystem. So at any one time, if you have got a device that you're using as an end user, and um, that is interconnecting with, say, devices that um, maybe your family you're using for different kind of more healthcare, uh, uh, nutrition type of example uh, purposes, then you will you will be seen as having the multiple devices that the the actual chain back to the manufacturer will be through the, the regulators they will know that who the the manufacturers actually are are and who owns those devices so if anything did go wrong there should be a chain back to the manufacturers um ultimately that's that's an interesting appreciate the, the explanation um adam is that how does that play with what we're seeing in the u.s landscape uh, and regulations that the FDA is putting out. I know there was uh, recently a mandate for over-the-air patching for medical devices uh, that's been coming out, similar to what's happened to automakers. Um, what what are you seeing for the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, the, the U.S. has, um, you know, had this on the radar for a bit, for a while in terms of the FDA. And so there was some initial guidance. And this is where it gets a little murky with the FDA is that when you actually look at the regulations themselves, the law, there isn't in there, you must do cybersecurity X, Y, and Z, right? Um, but instead, what they do is they uh, publish guidance documents. And those guidance documents will have a regulatory connection or underpinning. For example, you know, having a quality system that's operating appropriately, and you can make a link to, to cyber off of that. Um, but the guidance documents are not actually part of the regulation. And so um, that has, in some instances, resulted in medical device manufacturer in-house you know, attorneys and in-house counsel taking the perspective that, you know, we don't need to do everything in this guidance, right? Like, this isn't the law. This is guidance. Um, but what ends up happening in, in that situation, though, um, is when they do go to get their device cleared, either um, you know as a, a in a pre-market sense um, or as part of a they call 510k kind of a renewal if you will of a of a device they'll find that those at the FDA that are evaluating that device have a security portion of that evaluation and they are using the guidance documents as their roadmap um, so while it's not officially the law that you have to do X y and Z um, Practically speaking, to get your device approved, you're going to run into challenges if you don't have those things. So the FDA has released um, a, a, a document, pre-market um, uh, security guidance, as well as post-market security guidance. The pre-market guidance is quite old. Um, you know, don't quote me on the date for now, but I mean, it's six, seven years old, something like that. And there's a, a draft pre-market guidance that's been in circulation for a while. It... Um, it got, I think it was planned to be released uh, maybe two years ago, but then COVID hit and the FDA, you know, obviously had other other priorities uh, to worry about. So, um, and certainly different regulatory environments between the change in um, in the, the presidency. So um, I think that document will eventually come out. And, you know, in terms of what 
Jane was saying on the increase over time in these, yes, the, the prior pre-market guidance document uh, on cybersecurity was fairly lightweight, not, not a whole lot of pages, you know, talks about risk assessment and patching and a few other things, but the new guidance document is quite extensive and has multiple line items and checklists for, you know, device firmware integrity and the ability to, you know, have, um, you know, more automated patching processes and, you know, be able to um, have better access control. It kind of goes through the the list of, you know, what you would expect to have a more holistic cyber program. So there's certainly been some and there is some out there right now today. Um, but I see, you know, the, kind of reading the tea leaves, right? There's probably going to be more regulation in this space rather than less. And we see that already with the draft pre-market guidance. Stay tuned for our next episode where we explore the inherent cybersecurity challenges with medical devices.